0: Welcome to the Wags of SCI podcast, where we discuss life, love, and caregiving after spinal cord injury, hosted by Elena Pauly and Brooke Paget.
1: Both of our partners are quadriplegics, and after connecting online in 2017, we began the advocacy and support group Wags of SCI, which is an acronym for Wives and Girlfriends of Spinal Cord Injury. We know
0: firsthand the challenges that come with living this lifestyle. And our mission is to spread
1: education, awareness, and positivity from our unique perspectives. So join us each week as we tackle deep discussions around balancing life as a caregiver and a lover to someone with a spinal cord injury.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Wags of SCI podcast.
1: Here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wags of SCI podcast with your hosts, Brooke Paget and Elena Pauly. We are very, very excited to speak to a very special guest for Caregivers Awareness Month this week. It's someone who has a lot of wisdom to share with all of us caregivers and all of us partners to someone with a spinal cord injury. Before we get into that, I just wanted to thank two of our sponsors. Of course, you all know Robin Wishart of Wishart Brain and Spine Law. She is the official legal advocate for the Wegs of SCI community. She's been with us for about three years now, and she is there to answer any questions you may have. If you need any help, if you need any advocacy, if you need any letters, if you need any resources in your area, because you know we all know how lost we can get in this process when we're trying to advocate for our partners. So Robin is there if you need legal assistance. She can help you with anything from insurance to home support to setting up specialists in your area. And she has resources all over North America. So you can visit weddingsvesti.com, click on the legal resources tab to learn more about how she works with us and how she works with the Wags community. Or you can go to her personal website, brainandspinelaw.com to contact Robin directly. Also big shout out to Annalisa and John, a quad wife and a quad from Florida rollinginparadise.com, disabled owned and operated, VA approved. They provide everything from hand cycles to wheelchairs to sport mobility, off-road mobility, lifts, stands, and accessories. So if you want to support a WAG owned and operated business, please visit rollinginparadise.com and tell them that the WAGs of SCI sent you.
0: And today we have Lisa A. Lumley joining us. And Lisa is a registered nurse for the past 35 years. She has been in numerous clinical roles, including working in a pediatric intensive care unit, acute pediatric unit, mother-baby unit, and a level three neonatal intensive care unit. She is dual certified in high-risk neonatal nursing and nursing professional development. She has been in numerous roles in nursing education and is currently a full-time faculty member in a four-year Bachelor of Science in Nursing program. Lisa earned a Master's of Science in Nursing Administration in 2008 and is currently planning a dissertation to complete a PhD in Nursing. The focus of her pro- proposed dissertation research is exploring the lived experience of significant other caregivers providing care to their dependent partners who sustained a life altering spinal cord injury. Lisa has been married to her high school sweetheart, Daniel, for 30 years, and they have been together for 41 years. Lisa and Danny have three adult children. So, Danny is uh, a T3 complete spinal cord injury. Sorry, he has a spinal cord injury that occurred about six years ago after being struck while riding his motorbike by an elderly driver who made an Ill- illegal U-turn. Lisa has taken on the role of Danny's primary caregiver and is passionate about conducting research related to significant other caregivers. It is her hope that obtaining data on this phenomenon will bring other under- others understanding the challenges coping mechanisms. Pardon me. Coping mechanism and rewards of providing care to a spouse or life partner. So welcome to this episode. And you have so you have so much education. You have so much knowledge. And you are living this life with Danny as well. So welcome, Lisa.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Brooke and Alina, for having me today.
1: We are really excited to talk to you. Like again, as we said, you know, we like to call wags like you, OG wags, because you've been around the block a few times and you have a lot to share, especially with the younger demographic or couples that are getting into this life just now and are possibly in over their heads or feel like they're drowning and can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. So we're really glad to have someone with actual lived wisdom on that can um, just provide some advice and feedback and, and share stories and just Give a little glimmer of resilience to the community. So yeah, again, thank you for joining us. What made you decide to get into nursing in general? And were you a nurse before you met your partner?
2: So it's interesting. Um, I became a nurse right out of high school. I always wanted to be in the medical field. Um, So right out of high school, I went to a four-year program and became a nurse, started in acute pediatrics, a pediatric ICU, neonatal ICU. Um, and yes, I was a nurse um, but, You know, wh- I, before my husband and I were married. Um, I became a nurse while we were still dating. Uh, the funny part is my husband is also a nurse. Um, he was a dock builder for 20 years. And you know, living with a nurse and hearing all our, my nurse stories, um, he was so intrigued that he actually went back to school and became a registered nurse himself. So my um, husband, Dan, before his accident um, was a registered nurse in the operating room. Um, He actually was a director of a perioperative services. Since um, his accident, he hasn't been able to practice as a nurse Um, But he's exploring other areas of nursing, such as a legal nurse consultant, um, maybe getting into some medical consulting. um, But currently, he's not working as a nurse. So we're kind of a a medical family. Um, My husband's a nurse. I'm a nurse. Our oldest son is a physician. Um, Our daughter, who's uh, 28 now, she's a registered nurse. And and believe it or not, the neuro ICU, Um, she decided to become a nurse after um, my husband's accident, after her dad's accident. Uh, because she was so enthralled by the nurses that took care of him in the critical care unit. Um, that she just had such a calling for it that, you know, she had a master's in teaching. She was a teacher for high school and uh, went back to school to be a nurse. So she currently works in the neuro ICU, uh, with other trauma patients and patients who have any type of neurological issues. And then my youngest, um, Daniel also, he's in school to finish nursing as well. So we have quite the medical family. Um, my husband and I, I guess, talked about nursing and medical so much that they all wanted to follow in our footsteps.
0: Wow. That's amazing. That's, that is very, very cool. And for your children to, to go into this, I mean, the injury occurred for you guys, not that long ago, six years is not that long ago, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. I mean, as you know, you, you both are, um, you know, in similar situations. It was a life changer for us. Um, my husband was very active and, uh, you know, very hands on. And um, it, it was it was quite the trauma for all of us. Um, he was in the ICU for about three and a half months. Um, then he was in rehab for about three months. We modified our entire home to accommodate him. Um, but you know what? Now we're, we're kind of normalizing. We, um, our children are growing and they're all successful, getting engaged, getting married. And, um, he's still, he's still Dan. You know, he's still their dad. He's still the love of my life. He's just, uh, we jokingly say it's, you know, Dan sitting, um, you know, uh, luckily yeah. cognitively he's intact. I mean, some maybe short-term memory losses, but I, I can't, you know, say if that was from the spinal cord injury just because he's getting old. Um, <laughs> but he definitely uh, is here with us. He's celebrating all of our life celebrations. Like I said, my my son became a doctor. My daughter became a nurse. Engagements and weddings. So it's just, that's the beauty of this, you know, as hard as it is to be a caregiver, I always, uh, we all always look at the glass half full. Um, and you know I you get the questions and I'm sure all the other wags uh, who are listening can understand this like oh my gosh how are you doing this like I could never do this and first of all no one ever gave me a choice right and one of my favorite quotes is you never have, know how strong you could be until being strong is the only choice you have right um, but I love to see the positive side of this my husband has endured so much and he's, he's truly our superman um, he he overcomes every obstacle. In the beginning, I had some help at home with, uh, we, we paid out of pocket for uh, an aide to come in so that I can go back to work. Um, and now six years later, we no longer have an aide. And, and he's doing a lot of his care on his own. I mean, um, you know, with my support and, and the support of all our loved ones, but he truly has persevered. And I, I think that the most important thing is love, right? Love conquers it all, conquers all. I mean, you know, when we got married, we pledged to each other to be through good times, bad times, sickness, health, you know, the, the spiel. And this is the real test of it. Um, and I would hope, and, you know, we've talked about it, that he would be just as engrossed in me if, if it happened to me. Um, so one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about this, and I'm so happy that you asked me to talk is because, you know, when my husband had the injury six and a half years ago, the, the medical staff was absolutely fabulous. And I attribute him being here today to them, right? You know, they saved his life. But the problem was, you know, as a caregiver, you're often overlooked, right? Like everyone is like, oh my gosh, he's so wonderful. He's so great. But the the, the whole burden of it, without sounding like it's all a burden, um, really falls on the shoulders of a caregiver. And I really wish somebody at the time of his accident, maybe I wasn't ready at the time, maybe a little after, would have sat me down and said, Hey, Lisa, you know what, this is going to be tough. And if you start to notice things in yourself, like anxiety or depression, talk to somebody like get into a support group. I mean, luckily, because of my background as a nurse, I did seek out support of WAGs and a therapist and, and close friends. But you know, it's so important for the caregiver to care for themselves, um, and I oftentimes think that the medical staff, doctors, nurses, don't see that there are two people involved, and actually more when you have a family involved. It's the patient, but it's also that caregiver, and I, I feel like, you know, one of the things that the reason I'm I'm looking to do research on looking at the life of a, a significant other caregiver is so many areas in our life have been affected. Right. Not just intimacy, but the finances and the roles that we played before and after. And I feel that the medical staff needs to know that. The medical staff needs to see that there needs to be resources for the caregiver as well, whether it's a support group, whether it's um, just, you know, recognizing the signs of burnout, recognizing the signs that you need to step back for a little bit. And that's really why I want to research the uh, phenomenon of, of, you know, significant other caregivers, because nobody knows what it's like unless you're going through it. And I'm sure yeah. everyone can relate to that, you know, like they're like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, or this or that. But unless you're walking in the shoes of a significant <laughs> other caregiver, you really have no clue.
0: Yeah. Well put, well said. And that's something that Brooke and I both say quite often is that we we really saw the lack of resources for not only family caregivers, but spousal caregivers in both, you know, rehab and hospital and all the way out and a lot of the time the spouse is looked as the the help they're just there to to help the nurses with whatever they need in rehab so thank you very much for saying what you've said what do you suggest or from your perspective you know brooke and i are actually on a panel we're um, on a panel to create some better resources for caregivers in hospital that we're, we're working on the study with you, the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver and what would you suggest are some of the most crucial resources at the time of injury for spousal caregivers if you could have let's say one or two things that were offered to you right off the bat in terms of support what would you say those would be?
2: Um, So that's interesting. I mean, because I think what the medical staff, you know, in not only the critical care areas, but in rehab focus on is the physical stuff, right? Like you need to learn how to transfer him. You need to learn how to help him with the bowel program. You need to learn how to help with, you know, activities of daily living and bathing. I think what's overlooked. And if I could, you know, wish for something that was there, it would be that support for the psychological end of it. Right. To have someone, perhaps um, some type of group of women or caregivers who have been down this road and who could offer advice, offer um, just a listening and, and, you know, helping ear um, just to have that psychological support, because I felt very isolated before I found WAGs. I didn't even know that there were other women out there, you know, like um. Uh, I guess I can relate it to like when you're trying to get pregnant and you look around and everyone's pregnant and you don't notice that until you're trying to get pregnant. It's kind of like, you know, being a caregiver, like I felt very isolated and I felt like it was me against the world. So I think having either, I don't want to call it a mentor, but I guess it is kind of a mentor having um, a peer uh, or someone who has been through it before Just to maybe call and say, like, listen, I'm having a really rough day and, you know, I feel guilty about the way I'm feeling. And what did you do in this situation? I I think that would have been really helpful, whether it's a support group or some type of one on one or or maybe building a network network of, of, um, caregivers. And, you know, my focus, um, of the research that I plan to do is on the significant other caregiver, whether it's a life partner, a wife, a a husband, um, because I feel like the dynamics are so different than if you're caring for your child or if you're caring for your elderly parent. Um, so I, I really think that psychological piece and having a support person or to someone to say like, okay, you're not going crazy, um, you know, just to have that, that person that you could really, you know, um, share your experiences with and learn from.
1: That's amazing advice. And to be honest, I mean, I just remember so clearly when I was going through this, I had the exact same thing as you, where I didn't think there was anybody else out there like that until I met Elena, actually, which was interesting. Cause I was just like, when we were in the rehab system, People didn't have time to talk. I met a couple of wives through my husband being in rehab, and he's a C4 injury. And I was trying to talk to them. They were just so overwhelmed, and they were so stressed and tired. They didn't have time to go for a coffee. And I was so in dire need of that real connection that you can only really find with someone else in your situation. And so it was really hard because you know it's interesting. You say the peers thing and, and I totally fully agree. I feel like there is a lot more peer support for the injured person. Um, and there's not like you said, there's really no peer support for the caregiver. I mean, unless you're there with somebody else whose partner is in the hospital. But they're not really a support, right? They're drowning at the same time as you. So it's kind of like, what do you do? There's nothing really like that. It's not important. It's not something that's that's focused on. And so my partner would go and see his peer supports, you know, he would go for an appointment with uh, one of the guys who had been injured for 10 years and he would talk to him and he'd get all his questions answered and he'd go to education and they'd answer all his questions and they'd help him. And in the meantime, I'm sitting over there in the corner being like, hello, like, do I not matter? (laughs) So yeah. So it's just, it's, it's interesting.
2: And that's exactly what I felt. Like I felt like, you know, not that I wanted to take away any of the focus from him and he needed it. You know, he needed that support and he did meet other, um, you know, uh, men that had spinal cord injury, but I didn't have anyone that to, to say like, Oh my gosh, what do I do? You know? And some of the advice you get from people that are not in the situation is not helpful at all. Right. I mean, I'm sure you've all heard it too. Like, Oh, this is your new normal. And, uh, well, you know, I heard horrible things like, you know, at least he's still here. And like, it may have been easier if he died. I'm like, what? I would never even entertain that. Like that never even came into my mind. And I, I think other people just don't know what to say. Um mm-hmm. so it's so comforting to have a group of women because you know the reality of is of it is the statistics show that over 70% of spinal cord injuries happen to men right and which makes for the most part if you're in a heterogeneous um, you know relationship most of the times the caregivers are female um so it is it, it's definitely very heartwarming to have this group but I really wish and you're right, like when you're going through it, you're drowning. So to have that network of people available who have been down that road and maybe have are a few years out or have, you know, um, been able to find some coping mechanisms or a positive spin on things that you can just really have a sounding board for. Or even to come up with some kind of pamphlet or something, you know, about the warning signs of of you know, psychological distress or depression or, you know, because the caregiver counts too, because if you have a caregiver who's sick, they're not providing good care to the person who needs it. So, you know, I think it's an all around win-win for, you know, for the spouse who has the spinal cord injury and for the person caring for them. It has to be a healthy relationship all around
0: that's very that's very interesting that you say that for the supports you know i I, there's one story that i like to share and i've shared many times um because it's actually quite um it's quite scary but when uh my partner dan sustained his uh spinal cord injury six and a half years ago the doctor i remember going to see the just my family physician at the time and asking and you know, sitting there explaining to them what had just happened. Dan had his accident in Cuba and just the whole everything that like what you said we go through when we go through ICU and and whatnot. And the doctor just looked at me and he said, Oh, I'll just, you know, I've got something for you. I'm going to prescribe you some of some sleeping pills. So that was the answer that I got. It wasn't therapy. It wasn't it wasn't anything that was actually like tangible and, and long-term sustainable for my well-being or help. But it was just, here's a prescription for some sleeping pills. And when I did go to see a therapist, I remember sitting in the office with her, explaining to her what just happened and trying to balance everything. And... um she looked at me and she says, well, you know what? You're actually doing quite well. You're not suicidal. So I don't really have a lot to say. Like she had no, she, she couldn't relate because something that like a spinal cord injury for your partner, which is, you you know, you are sort of bumping into some life and death conversations there because a lot can happen. A lot can go wrong. That my The therapist that I had didn't even have the advice. So for anybody listening right now, I just want to encourage you to keep seeking. And like you said, we are so grateful to be able to have this group of very well-rounded group of women who you know with the following that we have of just 2000 women even in the private discussion group that are sharing advice that are that are sharing lived experiences they're not a physician who's going to sit there and prescribe you sleeping pills necessarily but have other options for you so i mean Listening to everything you you're saying everything that Brooke and I consistently talk about is that we're just so grateful that there are women like you that are coming on podcasts and sharing your story and are able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Because I think sometimes that's a really, really good reminder that there is six years later, you could be where Lisa is coming on a podcast to share your wisdom and not necessarily drowning, right?
2: That's interesting, Alina, that you said that because my doctor too wanted to prescribe an antidepressant and Xanax, and I'm like, no, that's not what I'm. And then you know, I did go to a therapist, and and her advice was, you know what, Lisa, I, you're doing really well, and again, you know, you're not um, overly depressed, but maybe you should consider having an affair. <laughs> and I was like, what? Absolutely not. Like no. that's not and that. And you know what? I'm like, I think it's time for a new therapist because. I I don't know that the medical staff, that the therapy staff, that the nursing staff is trained in this, is, it knows what to say and, and, and understands and says, you know, just keep Trudging along and take care of yourself, and and that's my goal as a nurse is to um, to broaden that knowledge base for the medical community. That it's not just about the patient; that we have to think about the caregiver's well being and 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 have supports built in for the caregiver. Because you know, when you have a, a person who has an injury, the whole family is affected. You know, and it wasn't just it wasn't just me as a caregiver; it was also my adult children. You know, they they also needed some support. And luckily, we're a very tight family and we were able to buoy each other. But, you know, the roles have changed so significantly and and the concerns and just the trauma. I mean, just, you know, after the accident and and again, um, just like you, it was almost six and a half years ago, but I can recall every single second of it. And for probably the first few years, I kept waiting for the next shoe to fall right? And they call it like a secondary traumatic stress syndrome. Like Mm -hmm. I kept waiting for something bad to happen. Like, okay, what's next? What's next? And you can't live your life like that and be healthy. So I I think that just an increased awareness for the medical community about the important role of a caregiver is so, so crucial to the well-being of the whole family. Um, So that's like, I feel like, you know, out of this situation, which, you know, felt like the worst thing that could ever possibly happen, I want something good to come of it. Like this, I want this to be my life's work is to um, help other women and for all of us to come together and and increase that awareness of the medical community. So there are supports built in for the caregiver.
1: Well, it's interesting because we talk about silver linings and, And uh, the positive side of everything. And I, you know, we've been, Elaine and I have been looking at a lot of statistics uh, following COVID. And we have a good, really good working relationship with the Washington Post. And we've participated with them in a few articles over the course of the pandemic about caregivers and about the shortage in caregivers and about the fact that nobody really seems to care about caregivers. And now, since the pandemic happened, all of a sudden, policymakers and people in power are starting to listen because they've either been personally impacted by a shortage of caregivers or they've had a loved one that has been impacted by their nursing team canceling or, you know, they don't want to expose them to COVID. So the caregiver at home steps in free for free without getting paid. And the stress that comes with that, I'm a huge, I'm a person that always says you have to be personally impacted by something in order to make a change and you can see it happening on a macro scale right now with what is happening now and you know they call it a quote caregiving crisis because there are such a shortage of nurses and and health workers and care attendants they're all stressed out the ones that are still there and they're overworked and underpaid and then you have all of these family caregivers that are stepping up because they love and care about their loved ones and they're not getting ac- any recognition or help for what they're doing and so I find it interesting because that is definitely a silver lining for me about what has happened to the planet over the past little while is caregivers and the plight of caregivers and how important they truly are, are starting to get highlighted. And people are starting to say, oh, wait a second, this does impact me. This will impact me. This person I love is impacted by this. So- from a nurse's perspective, as someone who's kind of been there, done that, and who is has a little bit of a different idea because you've experienced what happens when you don't have the support yourself. How important is it for each individual woman and each individual caregiver out there to kind of raise the alarm on this and to kind of speak out on this in her own local community?
2: I think it is absolutely 100% Crucial. Um, We are in a crisis situation, and many of the family are picking up where the medical team left off, right? So, people are going home a lot sooner. Um, People that are going home have some very complex medical needs, and most caregivers aren't nurses, right? I mean, um, I heard a lot like, oh, people like, oh, it must be so easy for you because you're a nurse. No, it's not. It's not easy. It's probably harder because as a nurse, I think of every particular possible worst outcome, right? So instead of being not being a little bit oblivious to it, I have that knowledge so that I think about, oh, this could lead to this or this could lead to that. So not every family member or, or um, caregiver is equipped with that. So I think it's so important for all of us to raise up our voices and write letters to your legislation. I mean, for those who have um, spouses or life partners that need constant care like there should be monetary compensation for that and the unfortunate thing is um that it's a state you know in the united states that's a state by state thing it doesn't it's not a federal kind of um you know uh law or or uh, regulation um and I, I think it's time to you know standardize this across make it universal It shouldn't be whether it's Canada or United States. This should be universal care, right? We should all have that option to to care for our loved ones. And if you can't work on the outside, to be compensated for it. I think that we all have to be part of it. I mean, I I have um, done some research and they are starting to, you know, come out with uh, things like the Raise Family Care Act and, uh, you know, the American Association for Retired People and the National Association for Caregiving came out with a wonderful report about family caregiving. Now, it wasn't just, you know, specific to spinal cord injury. But it's other family caregivers as well. And it, the time is now. I mean, the time, the, you know, its the opportunity is hot right now to really um, make a difference and to raise the awareness. I, I think we all have to uh, be part of this. And, and yes, to use the group as support, but also their strength in numbers. And there's so many of us out there that I think that we certainly could make some changes where they're needed.
1: Well, and, and it's just that like everyone thinks, you know, well, what do I have to say? What, why am I important? Like, that's why we like to profile real women like you, real women that are actually using their voices to get somewhere and bring some change. It doesn't, when you're speaking to somebody about caregiving, you don't know how many people they could speak to and how much even one person can spread awareness. So that's why it's so important. Like people think, oh, I, you know, I can't say anything. It's not my place. No one really cares. That is not true. They do care. Every, people do care, but even the people that pretend to not care or that really don't have time for you and don't want to hear about this, you don't know if they're listening or not. This could change their outlook on something. This could, I've talked to so many people. Over the course of the last eight years since my partner's injury, where I didn't think that they were even listening to me and I would say one or two things. And then I would get in contact with a friend of a friend who said, Oh, you know, so and so, the person I was talking to told me about this and brought this attention to me. And now they know somebody with a spinal cord injury. So they start to think about accessibility more. And it's the same thing with caregiving. It's the same thing with. Um, unpaid caregiving. And, you know, all of this advocacy that we're doing behind the scenes here in Canada and in the US to advocate for women who choose to stay at home and provide care for their partner should be compensated. Um, it's really, really important to tell your friends about what you're doing. Even their friends that are just like, kind of, they don't really act like they're are that interested in stuff, maybe that's just your filter, right? I always like to like mention what is going on as far as the advocacy because people are shocked. Even friends that I'm really close with have been like, wow, family members, wow, I didn't realize you don't get anything for for the care that you provide your your partner. That is so wrong. Oh wow, I didn't realize that because of your marital status, That is the only reason you're not getting paid. Oh my God, I didn't realize that you would have to move out and have a different address than your partner in order to be paid to be his caregiver. It's like, this shocks people. And these are the kind of things that like people, you assume people know, but they actually don't. And so, I don't know. I think like what you said earlier about it's how it's a hot time to, to start talking about this. It is. And with Caregivers Awareness Month, which is all November long, this is what we're talking about. These are the kind of conversations that everyone has to start having. They don't need to be uncomfortable. They just need to be little snippets. L- look into my life. Look what's going on in my life. This could be you. You know, we always say this quote um, all the time in all our podcasts that everybody is going to either need a caregiver or be a caregiver or it's 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 universal. It's something that is it's happening. You're going to need one at some point or you're going to be one at some point. So why not start these conversations in in our little small circles and just make it known what is going on, right?
2: Um, yeah, and that is that's actually one of the main reasons why I chose this topic for my dissertation, you know, exploring the lived experience of a significant other caregiver caring for a partner with a spinal cord injury because I wanted to hear, The voices and the words of the women and caregivers who are doing it, because you know what, if we're all sharing our experience, somebody else might go, wow, I never thought of that. Or I'm not alone. Or yes, that's exactly what I'm going through. And that, like I said, you know, when I proposed my topic to um, to the school that I'm in. Um, I got a little bit of pushback because um, the head of the, the program said, nah, you know, Lisa, it sounds to me like this may be a little too personal. And I said, well, that's exactly why I have to do it. You know, we were told to choose a topic that we're passionate about because so much work goes into research and writing a dissertation that if I'm going to write a dissertation, it has to be about something that I'm passionate about. And this is passionate. And you know What? I could certainly be professional enough to bracket my own feelings and listen to others' feelings so that they could be beneficial to the caregiving population as a whole. So I'm really excited to embark on this research. I'll be certainly reaching out to our WAG uh, friends to see if they would volunteer to be interviewed and, um, you know, have a little bit of ways to go to like get to that. But I think that just hearing the voices of real women um, about what we're going through will help raise that awareness as well,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, what would you say, Lisa? you know uh, going back to sort of what you were talking about earlier with your children as well, and how the dynamics how how the roles become adjusted when your partner has seen spinal cord injury. Um, Have your children, do you feel that your children have now become caregivers to their father as well? Or how, how does that work in your family household? Um, How, how did that role change for him?
2: So that's interesting because um, one of the things that I, I chose to do for our family was, I mean, my children certainly will help. Uh, my two older children no longer live at home. Um, but when my daughter was living home, she always tried to jump in and help. And I felt as a mom that I didn't want her to, like, I didn't want her to be the caregiver. I wanted her to be the daughter. My son, you know, he's he's still living home. He's 24. And he tends to try to jump in as well. And, and as a mom, I, I try to Somehow protect them from that because I still want them to have that son father relationship and not, you know, father caregiver relationship. So for them, they're more than willing. um, But at the same point, I feel like part of my role as a mom is to keep their dad as their dad and not their patient because they all are in the medical field. So they're more than willing to help. But I feel as a mom, I kind of, insulate them from that, um, only because I just, I feel like it's my role as my husband's wife to do that. And I I just, I don't know, sometimes I just, I want them to just be his child and not his caregiver. So that's just my own personal opinion. Um, But it's very hard to explain to other people too. how, you know, I'm so truly grateful that my husband is still here with us and that my children still have their dad. But it's so truly hard to explain to others how you could miss your husband when he's sitting right next to you. And I feel that my kids feel that way too. Like it's hard to explain how you can miss your dad when he's sitting right there. Right, because he is different now. His physical capabilities are different. Um, So I did, for my part, I they certainly are more than willing to help. But I also don't share all of the heartaches of being a caregiver with them because I don't want to burden them with that. Um, If anything, I I try to somewhat hide it from them, you know. And I want I don't want them to take on my worries. So I, I basically put on a happy face. I stay strong, even when I don't feel strong, Um, just because as a mom, I feel like that's one of my biggest roles.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are so many roles that we take on as women. You know, I'm sitting here listening to this conversation and I just, I can't help, but just have so much compassion for all the women and all the caregivers out there who just take on so many responsibilities and so much. It is a lot. And I really don't like sugarcoating it. It is a lot. It is a lot to take on. You're navigating kids. You're navigating a job. You're navigating your research. You're navigating your partner's injury, your emotional state, his emotional state. It is, (laughs) it is definitely a wild ride. And, you know, we would not be able to do this without the support of one another. That's for sure. It's 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 a crazy life. It's a wild ride. I I wanted to ask you, the Washington Post came out with an article. It was this was in 2021 and we partnered with the reporter Amber Ferguson on this. It was called How America Treats Parali- the Partners of Paralyzed Men. And it was a big investigation into unpaid support and the emotional and mental toll that this takes on the caregiver. Um there were only 8 states out of 50 that Compensate spousal caregivers. Do you live in a state that compensates spousal caregivers at all?
2: I don't believe New York does, no.
1: So there's no programs, there's no opportunities, there's nothing as far as pro- like giving any sort of support to family caregivers in New York.
2: Well, the thing is, like, even not just monetary uh, compensation for caring, but even medical insurance, right? So Right. I get my my benefits through work. But now my husband is eligible for Medicaid. Now, I know that your, your health care system is different. Um, however, in the United States, Medicaid is for low income or for those that are on permanent disability. Now, my husband qualifies for it. However, because of my salary, he would have to pay $500 a month for it. Now, one of you had mentioned earlier that, you know, If we weren't married or if we didn't live together, then it would be free for him. So if we got divorced or if we didn't live in the same house, his medical benefits would be free and mine would be a lot cheaper. So the support that's there from, you know, regulatory agencies and government is not really there if you think about it. For those married couples, for those people that choose to stay in a committed relationship, um, it's very difficult because... Financially, it's really difficult. Um, Like I said, if he wanted to get um, Medicaid, it would cost him about $500 a month because they're considering me and my income. So that's not fair. <laughs> you know, I mean there's yeah. there's so much work that has to be done in this in this particular department. And also, you know, even just getting him a new wheelchair. Like his wheelchair now is about 6 years old. So it looks like it went through World War 3 because he smashes into the molding and everything else, you know, right? And mm-hmm. he's definitely due for a new one because he also, you know, when he came out of the ICU, he was so he lost so much weight that they fit him for a wheelchair And he was like at 150 pounds. Now he's gained weight and he's about 220 pounds. So his wheelchair is a lot smaller than it should be. So even to try to get him a new wheelchair, you had to hear the back and forth with the insurance companies and, you know, the deductibles we're paying and who can afford all this? You know, it's just, everything is just so expensive. And, you know, if he didn't have his wheelchair, he would, he'd be grounded. So right. it's just the support is just not there, not there the way it should be. A wheelchair 100%. is a necessity. Like even even coming out of rehab, um you know, when you have to order all the equipment, and I the therapists were excellent. They made a whole list of slide boards and this and that. And when I called the insurance company and I tried to order a shower chair, they told me it wasn't covered. And I said, "Wait, why would a shower chair not be covered?" And they said, "Well, it's not a medical necessity." I go, "So I shouldn't." he shouldn't shower. Oh, he could take a bed bath for the rest of his life. He's going to take a bed bath. So it cost me almost a thousand dollars out of our pocket to buy him a shower chair. So why isn't that covered?
0: Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting that you say that, that the, the level, so the quality of life that you now have, because you have a disability plummets even further down the drain because you can't get the equipment that you actually need to function the, the same or similar, you know, through a similar routine that an able body person can. Like you said, the bed baths. Now, not only having a bed bath now requires, definitely requires a caregiver to help you with that. Because who can lie in bed paralyzed? and wiggle around trying to clean themselves. So if only... You know what I'm saying? It's almost like a preventative... Why wouldn't they cover a shower chair where somebody who's a paraplegic could potentially transfer themselves onto and give themselves a shower? It it just doesn't make sense. Um, One of the things I wanted to mention to you, Lisa, was my partner, Dan, He discovered, so Dan is going to be graduating next year um, as a therapist of recreation. And he discovered, I want to say it was a year into our accident, that if he took some courses at school, that his medical coverage would cover everything like a wheelchair and medical equipment. Now, I think you only have to take about one course, one or two courses Um, and you get this, the student benefits. Now, one of the most interesting things that I learned throughout this process was a, nobody told us no social worker, nobody at rehab told us that this was even an option. And B that when it came time for him to get coverage for a wheelchair, they wouldn't cover the cushion. So they would cover the chair, but not the cushion that you sit on. So then Dan went back to the drawing board and he called the policy, um, the insurance uh, company and talked to them about, about the policies. And he says, do you realize a you probably don't have a wheelchair user working in this department who knows anything about the equipment that I need? And B, do you realize that I need the cushion to sit on? It doesn't come with a seat and they had no idea. And after he gave them this this piece of awareness and sort of educated them, they went back and they said, we will cover it. So again, it's one of those things you have to use your voice and you have to go through these experiences on your own because you learn so much and you can help so many other people through the things that you didn't know yourself, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly a learning experience across the board, right? Not just dealing with the medical, but the insurance and 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 all the the other uh, components of having a disability as well, and even just you know like the hardships. If you think about it, you know, if we get invited out to dinner by friends, my first thought is, oh gosh, I hope they're accessible. And as the minute we, you know, get off the phone or text, I'm I'm on, you know, Google looking up whether the restaurant or the facility is accessible because some of them aren't. Right. I mean, not every place that that's out there is is accessible Um, and they might say, oh, no, yeah, we're accessible. And then you pull up and there's stairs in the front. So how is it accessible? Um, Yeah, it's it's certainly a learning experience. And and again, I'm truly grateful for this group. I I wish we could do some kind of like uh, worldwide gathering so we could all meet uh, and just kind of share our, our experiences.
0: We're working on it. (laughs) We're working on it. And, you know, back to the accessibility thing that you were just saying, not only is it is it the stairs like the most obvious piece to being accessible is like okay duh, do you have stairs but it's also can your wheelchair fit through the front door is is the entrance wide enough or can your wheelchair and the footplate fit under a table where your footplate is not is not hitting the bars you know the the table legs or whatever the design at that time is for the newest trendiest table at a restaurant so it's like it's all of these things and And can you even get a taxi to your destination to pick you up on time? I say this because on Saturday, Dan and I decided to go to Elton John, the concert, and take his parents. And we called for a taxi at 6.30. And they kept on dropping us, dropping us. By the time we made it to the concert, it was 9.04. That's how long it took us to finally make our accessible way to the concert. So these are the things that it's almost like you have to plan for accessibility. You have to plan months in advance. Like you said, going on Google, you have to research your route. You have to see, oh, is there a bathroom that he's going to be able to go into to do a catheter? Like, is the bathroom door too heavy to open if he's in there and there's nobody else in there? Can he get out of the bathroom? It's, it's everything. It's literally absolutely every single thing in life that you could think of that you have to think of.
2: I think my favorite and funniest story is, you know, um, when we are out, uh, People come up to my husband and say, thank you for your service. And he's like, wait, what? I was never in the military, what, you know? And he used to explain it to them. And I said, Dan, just go with it. Just go. Okay, you're welcome. Oh, my gosh. People <laughs> actually thank him for his service. And I just think that now I laugh about it. But in the beginning, I was just like a little insulted. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but, yeah, it's definitely a world that needs um some awareness about this and and again unless you're living it you don't you don't truly understand it you know um a restaurant that we were supposed to go to on saturday night um my husband dan called and he said are you accessible she's like oh no we're definitely accessible there's just one small step to get into the main air and he's like well how small are you talking she's like it's only about four inches tall and he's like yeah that's not accessible So I. Exactly. A small step could be, you know, a, a huge step for someone in a wheelchair.
1: Oh, but yeah. And it's so funny because you guys have way better rules for that. Um, especially in New York. That's like, isn't that illegal? Like, don't they have to make it accessible?
2: Well, here's the deal. If it's an older place that um, didn't have accessibility, they didn't, they were grandfathered in. The only way that they have to be accessible is if it's a new owner or a new construction. So you might have places that have been around for a while that don't have you know accessible doorways or stairs um and they didn't necessarily have to change that so if they sold their business or if they had reconstruction then then they would have to
0: and is that because it's like deemed a historical a building or is it just because like they would have to literally rip it down and build i think
2: it's just i don't think it's the historical piece i think it's just the way that you know it worked that uh you know they were just grandfathered in but even, even going on a plane, right? I mean, they, that, that, mm-hmm. that's crazy. You know, we traveled, um, right before, before COVID and, you know, we had to transfer him into the seat. He wound up having a little pressure injury from sitting for three hours and, you know,
1: mm-hmm. and they broke
2: his wheelchair. So it's it's just, uh, it's tough all around. So it's nice to talk to to people who truly understand it. But I do think collectively we have to, we have to raise the awareness of, of all the challenges and and we certainly have to, you know, band together to help each other. Because I, I think that, you know, we're, gonna, we're the backbone of, of this right now, the caregivers, and, and we need that strong backbone and support of everyone, not just, you know, each other.
1: It's really fun talking to you right now. Um, even for us, like we are on the private group every day, pretty much all day, um, and mod- moderating and solving problems and meeting new women and emailing and, you know, a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes. And it is it is still really, really nice to just have an actual conversation with another WAG um, and not have to be solving anything, just chatting about about shared issues and shared celebrations and shared uh, heartache. And it's it's funny because Elaine and I, we, you know, we've met thousands of women over the years, and we all have very similar issues, like very similar things that have happened to us, like from your incident on the plane to breaking the wheelchair to having the four inch step to having the hospital, you know, counselors saying, well, you can't have any help because you're not suicidal um, pre- to prescribing drugs. Like these are all things that happen. It doesn't matter who you are. The, like literally, these things have happened to all of us, and so it just goes to show you what a ridiculous system is in place right now. And but also the hope in that we are all here right now, witnessing some sort of a transition, where it's you know it's not like we live in the '80s or the '90s anymore, where nobody's really cares. You know, we're in an an age right now where it's like, wow, we're actually witnessing some of our systems crumbling because we don't have mental and emotional support for caregivers. And it's very, very hard to watch this happen, but it's also very exciting because, you know, these things have to fall apart before they can be rebuilt, right? And so to kind of be on the leading edge of that and to seeing it happen in real time is, is, is really exciting, but you know also a little bit scary because it is the unknown right everybody is seems to be a little bit fearful of the unknown but yeah it's really good to have this conversation with you just you know one way to another to another and just find that commonality again and it's just it's really really nice for me to sit here and chat about all these things because it's like oh yeah i forgot we're not really alone in this right
0: mhm absolutely if you had a piece of advice for yourself, Lisa, at the beginning of your partner's injury, what is one thing that you know now that you wish you told you had known or you told yourself at the very beginning?
2: Hmm. I think um, that advice would be to not be so hard on myself. I felt like I always had to be the strong one, right? You always have to be the strong one and, and grin and bear it. And, you know, it's okay to break down. It's okay to feel like you're not doing enough one day. Um, You know, just to kind of get up the next day and every day is a new day and approach it like that and to be truly grateful. And that's, that's what I, thrive on right now is just being grateful. Grateful that I have my husband. Grateful that that we still love one another. Grateful that at the end of the day, he's still the guy I want to come home to. Um, And I think just, I think, you know, what I, just to be a little easier on myself, because I thought that I always had to be that strong person and you don't always have to be the strong person in the end you pull it together anyway um, but I think just going a little easier on myself because I, I did feel as as the wife who was a nurse I should have had all this under my belt and it's it's a learning experience I'm still learning believe me every day we learn something new and you know he he recently got a colostomy which I wish he would have done about three years ago because it just made our life so much easier and it was just one less thing that we worry about and one more thing that he could be independent with. So um, I think my advice to myself would be like, "Ah, don't take yourself so seriously. You'll figure it out.
1: That's really good advice. Really, really good advice. And I kind of echo the same. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I just wish I wasn't so hard on myself. And you're so right. You end up pulling it together in the end anyways. You might as well not be as hard as yourself and spend time relaxing more. Speaking of relaxing, what do you do to relax? What is your primary self-care that you do just for yourself?
2: So I love to read. Uh, I'm an avid reader and that's kind of how I turn off my day at the end um, of each day is I love to read. I read all different kinds of historical fiction and, um, you know, just having a social life too. I think, you know, we have a great group of of friends. Um, We like to go out and listen to music. And um, I think having that it kind of makes us, it normalizes our routine, it normalizes our lives. Um, so I think just getting together with friends, reading, um, those are some of the things that I do for myself and for us as a couple. Um, and also talking, you know, if I'm having a rough day, I have no problem letting Dan know about it. And, and he's so good. He listens and, you know, he tries to help, but even just listening helps too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast today and sharing some of your wisdom and sharing some of your lived experiences. And the work that you are doing is so, so important and so crucial for the betterment of all of us collectively. And what we always say is when you're when you feel seen and heard and taken care of, you are better version, not only for yourself, but the people around you as well. The people that you love and you owe it to yourself. So thank you so much once again. And if anybody would like to reach out to you in terms of volunteering for your research study,
2: um, how would they do so? so that's interesting because I do um, I'm still in the process of proposing my my research to um, the school the university and once I get an okay for the proposal I will um, reach back out to you um, you know to both of you to ask if you can help um, maybe put some type of flyer on on the wags page and um, they can contact me directly uh, I'll put a, an email address there a phone number and certainly we it's open to everyone so so we could um, do an interview through Zoom uh, virtual over the phone. I think Zoom's better because I like that face to face. So when I get to that point, I will certainly reach out to both of you uh, and ask for your assistance and in, in recruiting participants that want to volunteer and make a difference as well
0: that's amazing so for anybody listening right now please keep this on the back burner and in your minds that there there are people that care about the caregivers and that there is a lot of work to be done but lisa is well on her way to planting the seed in many of our thoughts so please stay tuned for that and we are so deeply looking forward to participating in any way we can with for you
2: Terrific. And of course, after all the data is collected, I will share with the entire group um, and hopefully that will benefit us as a collective group as well.
1: Of course it will. Thank you so, so much, Lisa. We really appreciate your words of wisdom, especially during this Caregivers Awareness Month. We are so, so grateful. And, you know, you can find anyone listening who wants to chat with Lisa, you can find her on the private discussion group. She's always around. um, And she's there to chat with anybody who needs some help or assistance or just some community. Um, Thank you to everyone who listened today. We hope everyone is having an amazing Caregivers Awareness Month and that you feel inspired and you feel motivated and you feel stronger just by listening to Lisa. So thank you so
2: much, Brooke and Elena. (laughs) I appreciate this. I appreciate all of your hard work. And I appreciate uh, the WAGS group and, and, and all of our collaboration.
0: So until next time, take care of yourselves and love each other. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers.